Welcome back to another installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle and uh, the people who make it and yourselves. This is episode 35. Uh, quickly, uh, a few words for any delicate soul stumbling across this extraordinary auditory experience for the first time. First, you're welcome. Uh, second, uh, we'll be gentle, mostly. But firm. Uh, and, and, and finally, this program features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. I am uh, Camille Foster of Freethink Media. I am joined in our Manhattan studio by Matt Welch, editor-at-large at Reason Magazine. Uh, and joining us via Ansible Connection or something, all the way from Austria, where it is approximately 1.30 in the morning, is uh, Michael Moynihan of Vice News, uh, where he does some kind of thing uh, related to that HBO show that's there, and and it hasn't his success hasn't changed him. He's still a good guy, and he, he joins us like in the middle of the middle of the night, early in the morning, like the the Franz Joseph of this conversation coming to <laughs> in my splendor. How's painting um, school Vienna, going for you? Uh, Vienna, by the way, is an incredibly beautiful and 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 astonishingly boring city but uh but you know it's uh, it's lovely and uh but for i am i am right now because i know we're gonna seg into this i right now am sitting in a hotel room in vienna and as you flip through the channels and watch austrian television and german television all these things there is a band of channels high up on on um the dial in most european hotel rooms where you get a series of other european news channels Mm-hmm. So uh, 24 hour news channels. The interesting thing here is that I get Cuban state television oh. um, in. Uh, so Cuba Vision Interna- International, wow. uh, I have on in the background, which is all Fidel all the time. And right uh, right now, Evo Morales is on a set that looks like Robin Bird's cable vision uh, set. Uh, this is the best they could do for Evo Morales. It uh, it's kind of Wayne's World ish, and uh, he's uh, he's uh, talking about the glorious Fidel, which um, I've had it on for some time, and it is it is exactly what happens um, when a dictator dies. If you have any doubt, which a lot of the European media seem to have a doubt of whether or not Fidel pa- Castro was the president of Cuba or the dictator of Cuba, just watch <laughs> how the state television network handles his death because it is. Uh, really something to behold. Well, Moynihan, you, clear, you clearly misunderstand uh, all of this. He's a complicated figure uh, and he's ah, yes, important yes. and he uh, loves the Cuban people. Uh, you you are correct. Um, this is, we're just after Thanksgiving on Friday. I expect it to be inundated with uh, scenes of mass chaos and hysteria at malls across America. Instead, we got this tsunami, tsunami of hot takes um, because Fidel Castro up and dies. Um, I, I wonder, I mean, you guys took a look at this. Um, obviously, we're all looking at, at, at most of this stuff as it developed. But best and worst takes, uh, Moynihan, what was the what was the very worst thing you saw? What was the best? Just just na- name names. You don't have to unpack it. Uh, well, uh, 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 Carlos Ayer, who's a professor of history at Yale University, who I had had on my uh, Sirius XM radio show, uh, who's fantastic and wrote something uh, for the Washington Post that basically kind of gave people who are confused about Fidel Castro's legacy a uh, capsule version of what he did 
uh, and didn't do. Uh, the worst, uh, hands down, I mean, there's, I can't say hands down, there's so many bad things. You just said something that was funny. I was watching on CNN International, uh, and there was this wonderful uh, wooden woman who sort of wind her up and put her in front of a camera in Havana, and uh, she kept on saying that, uh, Fidel created a country of contradictions. Wow. This is what everyone says on television now, <laughs> um, uh, which is driving me absolutely crazy because no, no, he didn't uh, create a country of contradictions. Um, but the takes in Europe have been fantastic, uh, fantastically bad. Mm. Um, they're sort of whimpering. And uh, on German television tonight, on Z I think ARD or ZF, there's been uh, documentary after documentary about uh, Fidel. There was one tonight. There was a half an hour on how the people of the world all travel to Cuba for the fantastic health care. And uh, they showed the Potemkin hospital that is for foreigners and everyone was slobbering and upset about Fidel. But I would say that the worst one was in the New York Daily News, um, which was really something else. Uh, the guy who wrote it is apparently a uh, college professor, as uh, they tend to be. And his name was Ron Howell. Uh, who teaches, I think, at some sort of match. Oh, he teaches at Brooklyn College, teaches English and journalism. And he wrote a piece uh, uh, for the New York Daily News, who for some reason were tricked into publishing it. Uh, and the headline <laughs> is, Fidel Castro was an unwavering champion of racial equality. Of course. Um, of course. Um, yeah, I've never heard anything the, to the contrary. The, no, I mean, the, which, is, which is utter nonsense on almost every level. But my favorite bit of it was, on top of all the typical um, slobbering uh, uh, Castroite bullshit that you get in there. The third paragraph, which was a single sentence uh, that refers to the assassination of Mal Malcolm X, and then the par parenthetical, and many are still convinced the U.S. government was involved. Hmm. Um, maybe he meant the Nation of Islam or, or Louis Farrakhan, yeah. but, but I just I thought that probably set the stage of what type of piece this was going to be. But it was a, a great piece, uh, uh, defending um, the loathsome Asada Shakur, uh, who uh, is now a fashion icon for uh, young uh, activists. They wear these As Asada Taught Me t-shirts. I don't know yes. if you've seen these, Camille. Yes, very, very popular uh, um, again. Uh, the Bla Black Panthers will always, always be in vogue. But but before you go, before you go further, because I want to, I do want to unpack some of this. Matt, I mean, that is yeah. a lot of awful. Um, Moynihan has given us quite a bit of, of yeah, the but he, worst. Oh, that's but, not even the beginning. But he left, he left, he left out the best line in there, which is, uh, I, I say, this is Ronald Howell, New York Daily News. I say the greatest media shortcoming of the past half century was not recognizing that Fidel Castro was you can wait for this now. Get ready. Sit down. Strap yourself in. Was the most dedicated and powerful proponent of racial justice the world has ever known. Mm -hmm. That was yeah. that was published. Uh, yeah. There's um, a uh, there's a tie. Well, Camille, amazing thing. Camille's doing his, yeah. his hand waving thing. Yeah. One hand you can't see because you're in Austria and you got the little mustache oh, yeah. now. Well, and the only hair because flapping. I have a, a little bit of a surprise. So I don't exactly. want to... I want to get to the surprise. Yeah. Uh, be, in addition to Ronald Howell, uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, for some reason, has an account on Medium. Uh, and they also, like Ronald Howell, said, uh, said uh, you know, although no leader is without their flaws, we must push back against the rhetoric of the right and mm. come to the defense of El Comandante for a similar you know, spurious... I, it, it, and before reasons. we before we do that pivot, and I know you're waving your hands, Camille. I when I saw this stuff, I um, and you know the the this Ron Howell guy, whoever the hell he is, 
uh, saying that the media has made uh, one sort of major mistake about Fidel Castro. I assume he thinks the media has made a number of mistakes about Fidel Castro. But I wanted to uh, uh, petition um, some Cubans when I was on uh, Twitter to see how they felt about this, but I couldn't find any because they weren't on <laughs> oh, the internet. Ouch. Uh, it was a really weird thing. It was yeah. really praising the achievements of Fidel Castro. And I was like, you know, I should ask an average Cuban. Yeah. And uh, then I realized that uh, I had to fly to Havana. So, I, the, the numbers um, I've seen, yeah, it's like a sub 5% of, uh, of Cubans have uh, internet access in their homes. And I, don't know, I don't know if that's true. It's not their homes. It's on their uh, smartphones on the Rambla at about 10 o'clock at night. Uh, I want to because this is the hand wave pivot, uh, say you said best and worst, the Mm -hmm. best by far. And I have not seen such praise thrown out Mm. for a piece of printed journalism in a long time, let alone an obituary is uh, of our friend uh, Glenn Garvin of the Miami Herald, who wrote just a masterful obituary. Uh, Anyone can read it, no matter what their feelings of are on Castro and Cuba and learn a ton from it. But especially uh, those of us who, um, you know, have been to Cuba and have some critical things of it. It's a it's a it's a master class on how you use journalism to make a point at, rather than making a point uh, to wrap your journalism around. Uh, and uh, and I'm glad that he got all this praise. And now he can retire and go yeah. home. And as I said, uh, the rather the rather obvious surprise is that uh, Mr. Mr. Garvin is joining us on the uh, podcast this evening uh, to to discuss this issue uh, and to talk to us a little bit about his uh, article. Glenn, thanks so much for uh, for hanging out. Anytime, anytime. Always happy to see what you kids are doing with the new technology <laughs> <laughs> on the on the interwebs. As as Matt said, any anyone can read this, uh, and I, I really do have to tell you, Glenn. And this is the first time you and I have talked, um, but I, I was just blown away um, by the op-ed, um, and and I wanted to to just take a look at a couple of lines. I'm gonna. You should go read it. Go find it at the Miami Herald. Um, but quickly, millions cheered Fidel Castro on the day he entered Havana. Millions more fled the communist dictator's repressive police state, leaving behind their possessions, their families, the island they loved, and often their very lives. It's part of the paradox of Castro that many people belong to both groups. And reading a little further down, few few fired the hearts of the world's restless youth as Castro did when he was young. And few seemed so irrelevant as Castro when he was old, the last communist railing on the empty, decrepit streets that Cuba became under his rule. Um, Really, really remarkable. Um, Great uh, depiction, I I think. And I want to say I want to ask you just sort of off the off the cuff here as as the guys were saying there there really have been just sort of a broad spectrum of uh of responses to this um first for from you what is most important uh for the person who isn't well acquainted with Cuba to to know and understand about Fidel uh, I'm asking you to condense uh sort of the insights of this great piece that you've written um but but perhaps you could start there well the the main thing is that this this seeming consensus among the American chattering classes that um, this was a great guy and and uh, uh, he broke Cuba out of the American orbit and that's a that's a singular achievement for which he should be praised and even if he goofed up a little bit towards the end um, he was a he was a terrific world leader that's all hogwash it's all hogwash this is a this is a man or a family if you prefer that has ruled for, uh, I'm losing track of the years now, but what, 58 years without free elections. In in what other country in the world 
would American liberalism find that to be an attractive uh, quality? It's it's monstrous. It's monstrous that his rule was never submitted to popular approval, and it tells you more than any. I, I don't care how many people they bring in on buses to to cheer and cry and so forth at his funeral. Uh, the fact that he was not willing to risk an election, and his brother thus far has not been able, been willing to either, that tells you all you really need to know uh, about what he assessed as his real popularity among the, the Cuban people. Um, this was a man who, who imprisoned people, who killed people, a man who urged the Soviet Union to use nuclear weapons against the United States, which I, for one, am totally opposed to. Um, <laughs> it's, Glenn, uh, it's so weird that I, I was thinking about this. No one really has talked about this except for weird anti-commie cranks like us. On this, like he actually—I mean, Khrushchev was telling him to stand down. Like, dude, you've gone a little bit too far for us. Uh, and this is—you uh, know—that that's not helping race relations, as far as I can tell. If you're going to fucking nuke Charlotte or uh, New York City or whatever. Well, yeah, I, 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 I actually, I'm, I'm actually glad you brought up that that um, idiotic uh, column by the uh, Brooklyn College shop professor or whatever he is. Um, <laughs> uh, talking about the, he talks he talks in there a lot about um, uh, Fidel Castro's support of racial egalitarianism in the United States. Of course, he doesn't say anything about racial equality in Cuba. Uh, if you follow the Cuban government. There is, there is, and has been for years, only one black guy in in any sort of position of quasi power or fake power. Um, it's Esteban Lazo, who is the president of the National Assembly, and the only time he gets to do anything is when some African socialist leader comes to Havana, and they they haul out Esteban Lazo to uh, show him off as as you know integration in Cuba. But the fact is, he's the single black person in any authority there. It's it's absurd to say that Castro has supported uh, racial equality in Cuba. He has not. He It is a far less diverse, far more lily-white government than our own. With a population yeah, I mean, that's... It's, go ahead. It's, yeah, I mean, and to, I have to sort of, I, I tweeted this. It's not a it's not a, um, a secret. I said the same thing about uh, Glenn's, uh, Glenn's piece. And I would actually also recommend um, going to Amazon because it's very tough to find in the bookstore and find the book that Glenn wrote in 1992 uh, called Everyone Had His Own Gringo, uh, one of the best books about uh, the Nicaragua uh, uh, Revolution. Um, and about the Contras, which is absolutely fantastic. But yeah, I mean, this is the point to be made is, you know, people like Oscar Biscay, these the political prisoners who are black. There's a fantastic book um, called Pichon, Race and Revolution in Castro's Cuba, I think, by Carlos Moore. Um, weirdly, it has, a, it has a, um, an introduction by Maya Angelou. And Carlos Moore is a, a black nationalist who uh, uh, didn't last long in Cuba because... Uh, he he uh, realized that the uh, ideas of racial equality are were a total fraud. And you know, look, it's it's why there's nothing about policy in that piece or cast or Cuban policy um, in general, social policy in general. There is a bunch of uh, tutting about about Panthers who are allowed to shoot New Jersey state police officers and then find um, a free house uh, somewhere that uh, we can't find in the phone book in Cuba. I have that, that's the admirable bit, apparently. And that's what he argues. He says, you know, the, the best thing about racial equality in Cuba 
is he allowed a convicted cop killer uh, to hang out there because because she's lovely and had uh, had a fantastic afro. And even um, and even with that, uh, just to jump in, when I was there in '98, and this is a typical you know foreign journalist thing to do there, is you go and you, you find a local panther, right? Because everyone was hijacking airplanes to Cuba in like 1969 and 1971. Sure. So I went and I interviewed Bill Brent, uh, who was a panther who was involved in the shootout. Uh, I think at a gas station or something in in uh, Oakland, hijacked, landed there, ended up doing some time in uh, in uh, prison when he landed. Um, if you ask this Black Panther, who is the, your only kind of source for, hey, look, Fidel Castro is great on race relations. He was working on a book when he died about how the revolution failed on its promises having to do with the race relations. So you're not even talking about Cubans. You're talking about Panthers. And the Panthers that you have there want to go home to Oakland. They they want to die in their own country, even though they'd probably be arrested for it. And that's why they didn't end up going uh, and didn't think that race relations were all that in uh, Fidel's Cuba. It's amazing the lengths to which people will go to to deny the individual experiences of actual Cubans living on the island when they describe this kind of quasi-paradise out there. There's a, there's a language that one has to speak when talking to uh, Castro defenders, uh, especially on the left. I mean, they sort of only exist on the left. And you have to say, well, you know, he was bad on race relations. Well, he was bad on everything. He was uh, incredibly homophobic. Well, I mean, you know, he was, of course, and, um, you know, the, the sort of labor camps, et cetera. But let's not kind of get into identity. And, but uh, let's just talk about the sort of overall record. But one of the things, one of the books that I've pointed people to, and I always have to point out that it was published by Nation Books, was uh, Jorge, uh, Jorge Edwards' book. And Jorge Edwards was, uh, was uh, the, a sort of diplomatic envoy who worked for Salvador Allende and was sent to Cuba in 1970. And Octavio Paz writes the intro to this book. But the book is called Persona Non Grata. Uh, it's a memoir of disenchantment with the Cuban Revolution. And uh, that's actually the subtitle. And it's an incredible look at what happened in 1970. The great thing about Cuba, and the interesting thing about Cuba, is this is not something, you know, you, you talk to people like Huber Matos, who's, who's dead. and It's not something where, oh, the revolution went bad. You know, this is a book, and Jorge Edwards is a, you know, a Allende uh, apparatchik who comes in 1970 and is appalled by it. I know uh, my old friend Christopher Hitchens, who went to cut sugarcane uh, like a good uh, uh, a member of the Socialist International in 1968 and said, this is an unbelievable hellhole. Um, so this really, I mean, this is you know, what, uh, nine years after the, eight years after the revolution. I mean, this isn't a revolution that went bad. This was a revolution that was bad from the very beginning. Well, Glenn, I, I wonder about just the sort of sentimentalism um, surrounding Cuba. I, I, I met some folks while I was traveling uh, overseas not too long ago, and, and, and Michael sort of mentioned the, the coverage he's seeing in Europe. Um, and there is this sense that they are worried, that people worry that Cuba will lose something um, if it if it opens up to the United States, that there will suddenly be a, a, a Starbucks or a McDonald's on every corner. Um, do, do you have a sense as to as to what as to what that's about and why it's it's so difficult for people to sort of talk honestly um, uh, about um, sort of the state of affairs um, in Cuba? Well, I, you know, I hate to sound like some rabid right-wing nut, but I don't know what else to say about about this this crap about oh, get to Cuba before there's a Starbucks on every corner. But to say this is just pure anti-Americanism. It's just 
they they just purely despise American culture, American commerce, and its byproducts. And you know, I guess I guess people go to Starbucks because they don't because they like it. Uh, I, I personally don't. So. Mm-hmm. Um, in, a, in a way, I'm arguing at purposes <laughs> to myself here. But, but, but you at least have the choice. Uh, that, that is just bizarre. It is just bizarre to me that people think that it's somehow more authentic if you go to a crumbling, uh, poverty-stricken, screwed-up mess uh, that Cuba is now. And, and you know, God help them if they have McDonald's or, or Starbucks. Um, I assure you... I assure you that if Cubans got a vote on this, they'd welcome uh, Starbucks and McDonald's. They just just as we do, just as everybody else in the world does. Uh, show me a place where where they've um, set up a McDonald's uh, and it hasn't worked out. I, I think you'll look you'll look long and hard for that. I want to also get you to address something else because I'm I'm reading something from Human Rights Watch um, on uh, on the 26th and and it and it's the opening lines and and we talk a lot about sort of nuance and the importance of having context in order to understand um, in in order to understand a story, um, but I was sort of surprised by the setup here. Um, Fidel Castro's achievement in improving access to public services for millions of Cubans were tempered by systematic repression of basic freedoms during his time in power. Um, and this is uh, this is from Amnesty International. Um, Amnesty International. Um, and, and it's on the one hand, it's certainly true that Cuba had a, a very generous safety net, so to speak. Um, but in another sense, it really is the repressive policies that were responsible for the incredible economic deprivations um, that existed and continue to exist in Cuba. Um, so I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's odd because you, you, I constantly see us coming up against uh, talking about uh, universal access to health care and how in the United States um, the, the standard of care um, or the outcomes, at least in Cuba, are even better than the United States. Is, is there any truth um, to, to those claims uh, in terms of the quality of, uh, of Cuban health care and services? Well, of course, this is the left's nutty uh, uh, embrace of egalitarianism at the at the expense of everything else. So, if if everybody has equally crummy stuff, then then that's a social advance in the in the view of leftists. Um, if 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 equality if if equality is attained by pulling everybody down to the lowest level, that that seems to be fine with them. I find it very peculiar. Now. It needs to be noted um, that Cuba, Cuba actually was doing pretty well in uh, among Latin American nations in a lot of these things like literacy and uh, infant mortality before the revolution came along. It is true that uh, well, it's probably true. Um, only a fool, frankly, trusts Cuban government statistics on this stuff, but. It it uh, it seems not unreasonable to think that that some of these things like infant mortality have improved, but they've also improved in in Costa Rica uh, and in Panama, and those nations did not plunge themselves into totalitarian nightmares uh, in order to do this. I I, I often wonder, you know, would uh, would Americans be happy if we raised infant mortality, but but shut down all the newspapers and and radio stations. Uh, I, I this is a crazy trade. I, it, it, seems, it depends it seems on who's in office. 
<laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just saying it, it depends on, on on who's in office whether or not they they would care about. No, that. Well, they they right. would well, care exactly. They would exactly. care in their own lives if they couldn't get aspirin at the store. And you, you, you right. You know, and well, you, you blame get the rubbing you blame, you'd blame the aspirin company. Well, the, con- the context. Of, you know, what does it mean that you a lucky few people in uh, in uh, Cuba can get really good brain surgery if you can't buy aspirin at the at the corner store if if your uh, if your diet is ridiculously low in calories and and uh, unbalanced because there's no there's no food agriculture has been strangled by the regime there is it's absurd to say that that uh, healthcare somehow justifies what they've done to the Cuban economy. There. Well, w- one justification I have encountered a, a few times, and I wanted to toss this at you, Moynihan, um, the, the role of uh, the U.S. government is something I've heard cited over and over again in propping up the former dictatorship and isolating the Cuban regime and, and forcing Fidel Castro to, to make all of these um, horrific compromises um, and, and to be a worse asshole than he, uh, than he actually might have been otherwise. Uh, I suspect that you might be skeptical of that, Moynihan. I know I am. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, a couple things is the way we think about Cuba is often, I mean, so for instance, when discussing, I mean, obviously everything is through the prism of the United States, and that also includes um, when you th- say things like uh, Starbucks. A Starbucks might come and it's going to ruin the authenticity. And we have this argument about this as if that is possible, because it isn't possible. You know, the Cuban government, there are Canadian companies that that trade and do business in Cuba. There are Canadian hotels and chains, et cetera. And why are there not Canadian, uh, why is there not a Tim Hortons on every corner, which is a Canadian coffee chain? Um, because the Cuban government doesn't allow it. The idea is we normalize Cuba in our heads to say that the second that um, you know, we open up trade, there's going to be a McDonald's and a Burger King and a Taco Bell in every corner, is that, you know, Cubans that work for foreign companies are not even paid by foreign companies. The government is paid by the foreign companies who then distribute the cash in very, very small amounts to the workers. I mean, the idea that this is some sort of system that is much like our own is is, is utter um, horseshit, to be honest. Um, you know, this and to talk about, you know, the fidelism as a byproduct of the United States. This is an argument that is as old as the revolution because guys like Herb Matthews at the New York Times who were dutifully being a stenographer for Fidel Castro in the Sierra Mestre in, 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 in 1958, 1959, um, the argument at the time was, well, I'm not a communist. He said this many times on American television in English with his son sitting next to him, et cetera. Um, and I was pushed into the arms of the Soviet Union um, by American policy. Raul at the time was quite openly a communist, even when they were in Mexico. So it's a, it's an, it's a nonsense argument, but it's one that everyone has kind of bought because in the Chomskyite vision of American foreign policy in the world is that, you know, there is nothing that happens that is evil and sinister in the world that isn't precipitated by bad American policy. And if that were the case, if Castro was sort of leaping into the arms of somebody else. There are plenty of other suitors that weren't, didn't happen to, happen to be communist uh, dictatorships. And of course, as, you know, as Matt mentioned, um, you know, Castro had to be talked down by Khrushchev. Gorbachev, uh, very famously, when he came to Cuba in, I think, 85, 86, 87, during the Glasnost Perestroika era, was appalled by the hard line that Castro was taking and saying, 
no, no, we don't want any of your reforms. And in fact, Grandma and, and a, a number of Cuban magazines publicly denounced the position of the Soviet Union. These people that were only in the arms of, um, of our Cold War enemies because of America's actions is totally, completely, utterly untrue. And to the, to the point that you said to Glenn about, uh, and Glenn was right, is right about this, is that in pre-Castro Cuba, literacy in Cuba was 80%. Uh, that that is higher at the time than Spain. That is actually true, and this is you know documented in the Ginsburg Atlas, especially. And if you look at this, the education system was good. What was the was the Batista regime a good regime? No, it was not. And by the way, the Eisenhower government had started backing away from and actually punishing the Batista re regime in uh, 1958 and uh, 50, 57 and 58. But it's it's crazy to think. And it's wrong to think if you say this is it's 99% literacy. Well, the two questions one must ask is one, what was the starting point? Nobody ever asked that question. What was it? Glenn pointed it out, is that it was, you know, wealth was fairly evenly distributed by by comparison to the region at the time. Was it, I mean, I, and as as was also pointed out, all these other countries did this stuff on their own without succumbing. To dictatorship. So th that's the first. Thing. The second thing is, do you, do you trust the statistics of the Cuban government? I don't. And the third thing is, what the hell use is it if 99% of the population uh, are literate and there's nothing to read? Ouch. Uh, I, I wanted to, I know we don't have Glenn forever. I wanted to build on what Moynihan said and then toss over to, to Glenn on an observation. The thing is, Havana was founded in, I think, 1515. From about that moment until the 50s, until the mid-20th century, Havana dominated commerce like a good port town would, dominated commerce and culture in the Gulf of Mexico and in the Caribbean as well. Dominated it. I mean the literature of the Caribbean is Cuban literature. The, the, the sports of the Caribbean is Cuban sports. Some of it, uh, you know, American gunboats also uh, came into play. But for the most part, what you're talking about, it's you're talking about Cuba was this thing. So a lot of the, the glorious decay that everyone loves, well, that was built up for four centuries there. And Glenn, since you're in Miami... <clears throat> You've been, you've lived there for a long time, been to Cuba several times. You've also been in the Caribbean and Central America uh, 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 quite a lot uh, over your uh, distinguished career. Um, to, can you just sort of set a scene for us in a way uh, that even that I don't uh, certainly understand um, how, you know, Miami just really wasn't a goddamned thing 70 years ago and Havana <laughs> was and, and, uh, and paint us that picture. Well, you know, I... I was hoping to get a job at the Chamber of Commerce when the Herald folds. So I'm not sure this is really the way to do that. Uh, no, it's true. Miami, uh, this is absolutely true. Miami was uh, a sleepy southern kind of town with a with a certain um, a certain interesting streak of criminality brought in by uh, uh, New York mobsters who came down here in the in the uh, 40s and 50s. But it was it was a sleepy town. It was not a cultural center. Um, people came to Miami if they if they came to Miami for the beach, and that was that was it. Uh, the Cubans came here, and with nothing but human capital. I mean, they they left in most cases with nothing but the the clothing on their back in in 1959, 1960. 
I'm not saying they got no help from the government, but mo- mostly they mostly they went it alone. And you know what? They took over everything. They took over everything. They took over the culture. They took over the politics. This is this is a very very Cuban city now. Um, uh, my gringo neighbors joke that the uh, the uh, name of the town in which I live should be Coral Gables instead of Coral <laughs> Gables. Gables Gables being the phonetic. Uh, uh, Spanish pronunciation. Uh, Miami has become a, a major center of commerce, uh, of banking. Um, the 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 uh, there's a lot of show business here, brought in by the the locales on uh, South Beach. Miami Vice made it into a, a you know internationally famous uh, a place for Art Deco and cocaine trafficking are are too proud of the Cubans. <laughs> and this is, this is all due to the Cubans. Now some people don't some people don't like um, uh, Latin culture or Cuban culture that, that's that's fine. But the story the one of the interesting sidelights of of uh, the Castro story is that it meant tremendous success for many of the people he forced into exile. They came here and they they lived lives that are much better than the ones they had in Cuba. Very interesting. By the way, I wanted to say one thing also. Uh, people who, who say, people who make the argument that we pushed Castro into communism are kind of running a little bit behind the curve here. Castro himself, in 1961, uh, gave a televised speech in Cuba in which he said, do I believe in Marxism? I absolutely believe in Marxism. Did I believe that on January 1st, 1959, the, the day he arrived in Havana? I believed on January 1st. Did I believe on July 26, 1953, that's the, the day he launched his first attack on uh, on uh, the Batista government? I believed on July 26. I'm sorry, but Castro himself stopped denying his communism a long, long time ago. And it's it's absurd to claim that this is all Eisenhower is doing or, or, or Kennedy is doing. It, but it's more fun. It's more fun that way to, to blame <laughs> someone else, especially the Americans it, it because also, they're awful. I also think in fairness – I have to do this in fairness um, because uh, there's possibly nobody in all of show business who I have more relentlessly mocked than Cher, the, the philosopher and the scientist Cher, um, who, <laughs> who – as I have often pointed out in print, uh, surprised Sonny Bono once by confessing that she had always thought those uh, those faces on Mount, Mount Rushmore were natural rock formation. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, Cher can always be counted on to say the most idiotic thing in any discussion. But listen to Cher's tweet uh, last week. Fidel Castro was a murderous dictator. He's dead. Like all strongman despots, he let his people suffer and die because of his insane ego. Okay, I take it back, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, Glenn, I mean, that was it's, it was awesome to have you. Uh, I'm going to let you go, um, but uh, hopefully we will get to talk some more. I mean, I, I, we didn't even get to talk about Donald Trump, who is taken to Twitter to, to let everyone know that uh, all of the gains that have been made recently in terms of uh, the United States and, and, and Cuba normalizing relations uh, may, may be lost. So we'll have to debate the, uh, the merits or lack thereof of that. Uh, don't time, don't get Glenn started. And, and related, I'll just say one last thing, going back to something we were discussing earlier. I would say that the person in all the entire world who may have been most freaked out by Donald Trump's victory is Joanne Chesmart. 
Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Trump, Trump keeps saying, well, I'm going to get a better deal for us. I'm going to get a better deal for us. I, I, I can I can just imagine um, Raul saying, well, you know, what if we sent this uh, Joanne person back? Would, would that would that satisfy you? Could we go ahead with normalization if, you, if we gave her back? Because she eats a lot. <laughs> well, fantastic. Well, thanks so much for uh, for hanging out for a bit. Um, uh, we will we will talk more more soon, and, and we have to talk about Westworld as well, which which I understand you're a little behind on. So we'll do that next time. Yes, yes, yes. No spoilers, please. Thanks a bunch. Thanks, Glenn. <laughs> okay, see you later. Bye bye. Cool. Well, uh, well, uh, that was that was fun. Um, and and we were sort of talking about events of Black Friday. That is not the only news event. Uh, on Black Friday. Apparently, uh, there is also something of a, of a recount of the presidential election that is going on. Uh, Jill Stein launches a campaign to raise, what, like $3 million uh, on the interwebs? It's, that was the original campaign. Yeah. She's, she's raised more than seven and a half. It might be nine by this Dear point. Dear God. Genius. Dear God. So she's, Super she's raised seven and a half million dollars. I don't know where the money is going. Uh, I know some of it has gone to pay for recounts in, uh, in important states like uh, Wisconsin uh, that the, the Democrats surprisingly lost. Um, all of the the smart money suggests that it is unlikely the outcome of the election will be changed. There does not appear to be a great deal of evidence that there was any sort of tampering with the election or anything like that. Um, but that hasn't stopped her from undertaking this. And shortly after that, uh, we get a tweet from Donald Trump uh, who uh, suggests that he won the election, um, not merely the Electoral College vote, but also would have won the popular vote had it not been for those millions of ballots that were cast um, erroneously. So uh, we, we do have some uh, some other things going on. I mean, Moynihan, I don't know how much more you've still got in the tank there, but I, I wonder uh, what your thoughts are on uh, the, the very... Uh, the very interesting uh, developments with uh, Jill Stein, the uh, former well, Green I wanna, Party I thank, candidate for president. Uh, uh, Dr. Jill Stein. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. She's a doctor. I'm sorry. I, I only a, diminish her because she's a, she's a woman. Chiropractor? Mm-hmm. She, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're a misogynist. I, mean, I can't help uh, Yeah. I think she's, a, she's like a foot doctor or something. I don't know. But Dr. Jill Stein. <laughs> Dowler. Um, <laughs> who is now – raised i think 18 times the amount of money she actually raised for her stupid campaign wow uh, in doing this stupid recount but jill stein provided me with my most popular tweet ever camille foster whoa of uh uh when i that i tweeted something and it's a it's a segue between uh our last story and this one uh dr jill stein uh tweeted that uh fidel castro was a symbol of the struggle for justice in the shadow of empire, and then uh, Presente right after that. Yeah. Uh, so Jill you, you, Stein. Uh, so I just tweeted at her. Um, While you're at it, uh, you should ask for a recount of the last Cuban election because 100 uh, percent for the incumbent seems a bit fishy to me. Um, <laughs> and uh, that was uh, retweeted five thousand times. Jesus. And uh, liked uh, uh, seven thousand five hundred. So hell of so a I hell of a humble Jill brag. Stein. Yeah, hell of that a humble was, was, No, it's not even humble. Yeah. It's just yeah. the best tweet I've ever had. Um, <laughs> it's not, it's just, I mean, the peop, people don't have good taste. It was not my best tweet, but it's it's the, the most popular. Uh, I just want to be clear about that. It is interesting, <laughs> as as ridiculous and offensive uh, a, a remark as that is uh, from Jill Stein, that is almost certainly less 
controversial than um, the libertarian candidate for president saying what is Aleppo uh, during a television interview. And what interview. is Aleppo? Um, so that that is a, a pretty sad statement on uh, on sort of where we stand. I don't I don't know. I also look at like the amount of money that she has raised. It took her zero effort. Um, Americans are all too happy to part ways with their with their cash apparently um, for completely dubious shenanigans because they believe in conspiracy theories. Many... I thought it was supposed to be the Trumpkins who believe stuff like that. What what the hell is going on, Matt? Uh, you know what? Uh, it's it's, it's uh, you've seen. We all have seen. Even if you don't look at Facebook, and and God knows I I, I don't. Um, but we've all seen. Our friends absolutely lose their shit over this election and like reorient their entire lives to fight white supremacy or whatever. I mean, they've they've really lost it on some level. And I and, and I I I sympathize. I am them in my own way and in, in a different language. Um, <laughs> but I'm trying to keep my head about me uh, through all of this kind of stuff. Uh, and so, of course, there's going to be this huge market because where's Hillary? Hillary's like hiking and uh, in 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 the uh, in the uh, the the Adirondacks uh, constantly. She's yeah. not doing anything. The, so the Appalachian Trail. So <laughs> she's she's making out with Mark Sanford. Uh, <laughs> one of these days, we, you know, we got to get Catherine Mangu Ward on uh, the show in general since she named the show, but also uh, to tell her story about when Mark Sanford called her in the Reason office mm-hmm. to apologize for a half an hour about letting her down. And then I'll the tell app- the and then I'll tell the story of how I met him on the train with his mistress. I think that I, re- I think I remember that I want to have Catherine, but I also want to say um, that uh, I am going to use the expression that uh, you know he gave her a hot Sanford. That's <laughs> going to be my new expression. I'm just going to coin that one now. Yeah. And if anyone yeah. wants to use it, uh, yeah. be my guest. Just uh, hashtag hot Sanford. Uh, yeah, and Thomas Liberty, who is the uh, the designated uh, our Twitter uh, oh, fan yes. artist, yes. who's done some really remarkable work out there. Um, I think hot Sanford, obviously. Uh, Lends oh, itself. please don't. What? <laughs> please don't. Please don't draw Do Photoshop anything. Do you know? it. Because if I get that in Austria, I think it's against the law here. Yeah, no, like, no. Like, actually, actually it's, all, it's, it's mandatory. You forget about the Germanics and the porn, uh, Moynihan. Oh, yeah. They, they put, like, they, like, lock girls in the basement for, like, 15 years. Anyway, but, uh, but uh, to the point of uh, Jill Stein, um, I give her an enormous amount of credit. Everyone's saying, you know, hey, don't retweet Donald Trump. Uh, uh, insane tweets about flag burning, et cetera. It's what he wants. It's like, yeah, but he's also going to be the president. So you kind of do have to cover it. But what we are not paying attention to is the fact is that we're actually giving uh, undue amounts of attention to the ridiculous, slobbering moron Jill Stein. So. I want to uh, uh, commend it to everybody out there to look at it. It was on Mediaite, certainly on the uh, Fox Business website, and, and Lord help you try to find it, or through our, our girlfriend uh, Kennedy's uh, Twitter feed. Kennedy had Jill Stein on a couple of nights ago, and it was a sight to behold mm. because Jill Stein is obviously, you know, she's never been more important than she is this week. So she was just like bouncing off the walls Running of the birdcage. Running scheme? Going crazy, but she was... Was, and and you know Kennedy's interviewed her a bunch. Uh, I, I saw uh, a near riot uh, breakout on the floor of the Democratic convention just by Kennedy walking and talking with uh, Jill Stein there. And uh, look on YouTube for that footage; it's, it's incredible. But Kennedy actually knows what she's talking about. And Jill Stein's just like, and then the machines they can be hacked. And uh, and Kennedy was saying, yeah, the machines that we're talking about, they actually are not online. They're mm-hmm. machines. You'd, you'd have to be there physically. You'd have Put to be a there USB physically. thumb drive in 
all of them. And she was just pulling out whatever fluoridated water kind of uh, remark that she could come up with. Everything that Greg Palast's fever dreams have produced over the years of uh, of conspiracy theorizing. And I, you know what? I'm surprised that there's only seven and a half million dollars in that. There should be 70 million dollars in people willing to believe this. And and as the present elects fucking tweet uh, shows that those fever swamps run pretty deep on the right as well. Just this nonstop uh, notion as uh, what was the name of a Hugh Hewitt book? If it's close, uh, if it's not yeah. close, they can't cheat. They can't, they can't cheat. <laughs> right? There's you know, this... it's funny. Yeah, I, I actually interviewed the guy. I went to Michigan a couple of months ago and interviewed the guy who made the claims. Uh, the University of Michigan is a professor. His last name's Haldeman. Yeah. Who is the one is like kind of behind this. And I interviewed him, and um, I think the piece is online. It was on the HBO show. And at one point, I said to him, "Like, isn't you're like, you're this is a you're looking for a solution for a problem that doesn't exist?" And he said, "Well, you know, the thing to realize about you know a foreign entity or someone trying to hack the election is that they can't actually hack the election. They can't really you know change the vote totals because of what Kennedy said and what you guys said is that it's not networked in that way." Mm -hmm. um, the machines are incredibly insecure, some of them, um, uh, unsecure. The, the thing that he said, which is really interesting, is that what people will try to do is so a kind of feeling of, you know, uh, of the sort of evil machinations of a foreign power that, you know, the vote totals might be a little weird, a little off, so it gets people thinking. And I saw this story and I saw that this was the guy that was saying, hey, this is like, I don't know if these numbers are right. They don't look right to me. Um, he's since walked that back. But mm -hmm. what he was claiming to me was that the, that the Kremlin, for instance, could just sow a sense of distrust but couldn't actually hack the election. And then it turned out that he was the one who was doing that. He was the one that was <laughs> sowing distrust and getting Jill Stein and all these um, bozos excited. But they really don't uh, have and, to know, sow a sense of distrust. I mean, Americans apparently just do not do not trust uh, their institutions. Um, they, they believe um, that, that this was fraudulent and they're, they're hoping uh, against hope that there is some way uh, to overturn the election. I, I do want to I mean, Matt, you mentioned the uh, the flag burning uh, in Trump's Twitter. And, and I mean, the, there's a couple of things here. First, it is the way that Trump's Twitter account has suddenly captured the attention of journalists all across America. It ain't, is the most important thing in the universe. Ain't no suddenly about it. it. It's it. Well, yes, you're correct. It's I was being sarcastic. Um, but but it's it's odd. They're treating his his Twitter um, emissions uh, as though it was uh, like Janet Yellen at the at the Fed, carefully parsing her words and choosing them so as to communicate what she plans to do from a policy standpoint. He's going to be the president, and that's the. It, but one wonders if that is a sensible way to expend your resources. I mean, can't you exhaust yourself? rather quickly doing that with with Trump's stream of consciousness on Twitter. Here's and don't you run the risk of exhausting the attention of everyone else? And Maybe. before you jump in, Maybe. and because I don't know how much longer we're going to have going to have Moynihan, I want to I want to claim credit for something. Um, the fact. Well, not just journalists. I did coin that. And it is for other people. It's not for us. We, we're we're good at this. Um, the the fact <laughs> that Hillary Clinton has also been a proponent of locking people up, at least in the in the form of advancing legislation that would do this for, flag for burning. burning flags yeah. and Donald Trump simply muses about it, perhaps wonders aloud about it on Twitter in 140 characters. Um, we talked we have talked 
and there has been outrage about the fact that Donald Trump has suggested it on Twitter. We barely spoke about the fact that Hillary Clinton has actually advocated for this. Who's we? Uh, I'm sorry. We, the American people, no. the polity. Ah. Ah. It, on, on, on net, I suspect most people don't know that. There are things that this particular asshole can't get away with, and I think that's a good thing. Um, I commend everyone. I just want to. I just want to call. I, I I commend everyone to read uh, Pope Hat Ken White, uh, who's starting a uh, uh, podcast soon on on uh, out there in the world. Uh, and he's going to flail. Don't advertise to... for his podcast unless uh, he yeah, advertises. He's going to get. Him. Anyways, uh, he wrote a pretty great post about this, uh, kind of talking through the importance of. Uh, uh, you know, why we should talk about this dumbass tweet, even though there's no chance of any of this happening. And um, and the way he points out is like, hey, look, I talk about the First Amendment. I talk about ideas. Um, and this is an opportunity to talk about and educate people about some other stuff, including the Supreme Court's uh, uh, jurisprudence on uh, crush videos and all these different types of things. And, and I agree with this. I think our first order duty in playing defense against what might happen with the government is to acknowledge that there will not be a federal law about flag burning. It's not going to happen for two reasons. One, the law won't be passed because there's only a 52 to 48 Republican uh, majority, and and it depends on people like Rand Paul and Mike Lee, who would never, ever pass this kind of thing. That's one. Two, more importantly, perhaps, than that, because you can always change the uh, the composition of the, of the Senate, um, is that the Supreme Court now, in a series of decisions beginning in 1989, but being extended, especially through this most recent Roberts Court in a bunch of different uh, uh, decisions, including on crush videos and other things, they have they have built up a huge First Amendment bulwark. So our first order of the day is to look around. OK, we're playing defense. Is there a threat? No, there isn't a threat. OK, secondly, well... There is the sideshow of, of politics that we're talking about and someone who has power, who's attempting to change the conversation and American political mores, which he has on other subjects. He has moved Republicans into being openly anti-trade, which they never had been as directly before. He has moved Republicans into being much further anti-immigration than they have been before. He, by being politically successful, campaigning and going on certain ideas, he has advanced those ideas and made them more possible in the future. To that degree, those of us who are interested in civil liberties and free speech, you, you don't ignore these moments. You point out, A, it ain't going to happen, but B, it's a dumbass thing to say. And it's not just throw people in, in jail for a year, which Hillary Clinton, you're right, proposed actual fucking legislation to do this, uh -huh. which is a hell of a lot worse than tweeting about it. However, he did add an extra authoritarian wrinkle, mm -hmm. which is, I will, you know, maybe we should revoke their citizenship too. And that's yes, not the yeah. only category that he and other Republicans and also Hillary Clinton, I, I should I should. Uh, have been proposing recently the uh, the nexus between it's usually not flag burning or expressive speech, but it usually has more to do with the war on terrorism. Um, it's on the rise uh, in Western Europe. And in terms of proposals, people like Ted Cruz, they've been coming up with reasons to try to revoke American citizenship. Mm -hmm. uh, that is alarming. Trump won the presidency in part by saying that we can kick out four million legal U.S. citizens from this country. So it is worth pointing but, out and saying Matt, it's bullshit. But Matt, it's Twitter. People say he's insane things on Twitter. He it, can say it out loud. If, if he said it out loud, so and I, he's, if it's he said it out loud with a microphone, I would also say this is a bad thing to do. I, right. It's not Moynihan, going to happen, but it's worth criticizing. Moynihan, are you going to pile on here? And yeah. Are you going to tell me that uh, we do have to worry about everything he says on, on, on Twitter um, and that that is the uh, most important thing yeah. that people could be doing with their time? Yeah, sure. We do. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> to, Matt's, to Matt's point is he's the president of the United States or he's the uh, assumed to be the president of the United States. 
is that, you know, we parse uh, every president's every utterance. And um, we can't, uh, I think we should hold Trump to a higher standard because because of uh, some of the absolutely bananas things that he said. But um, yeah, especially on something like this, on a First Amendment issue, uh, something I care a lot about, do I believe that this has a snowball's chance in hell of becoming actual policy and actual legislation? No, I don't. I mean, I spend most of my time explaining to people that um, how government works and mm -hmm. <laughs> telling people that because uh, the Republicans control the House, the Senate, uh, the, the, the White House, does not mean Donald Trump has a blank check because, and I have to explain to them filibusters, and to explain to them that there's not a uniform idea of Donald Trump amongst Republicans. Matt mm -hmm. mentioned, you know, Mike Lee and Rand Paul, and I'd have people like even, you know, John, John McCain and Jeff Flake and a lot of other people. But, you know, so but the one thing that, that, that I think is really interesting, and to pivot slightly, is, um, you know, what I, I think all this stuff is really helpful to me uh, to separate the kind of wheat from the chaff, the nuts uh, from the opportunists. And I think a great example is somebody I always knew was an opportunist and uh, not somebody who was ideological, although he played that person on TV, is that Trump has this incredible ability to expose the frauds. When he's draining the swamp, he's doing it in ways that he doesn't quite realize. He's exposing like the creatures of Washington, which he talks about all the time, but he's doing it in ways that, that, that he doesn't uh, understand at all. So for instance, um, uh, Steve Moore, oh, yeah. uh, the uh, supply sider, uh, Reaganot, um, you know, Wall Street Journal editorial page, former, uh, founder of uh, Club for Growth. He worked at Cato founder for of a Club long for time. Growth. Worked at Cato. Yeah, he's. I think he's probably still a, a resident fellow or whatever. You get this for life kind of nonsense positions. Who decided uh, upon Donald Trump's election that he no longer believes in free trade, that he wants to understand the populist anger out there, and gave this interview in which he repudiated everything that he has, uh, not everything, but most things <clears throat> that he has spent his life um, uh, flacking for. And it is uh, Trump exposing Washington, but not in the way that he intended. Well, this is the exposing Washington thing. And it, just, just to stick with it for a second, there is a way that we talk about sort of Donald Trump and the way that his campaign has has sort of thrived on the the attention that he's gotten from the media, um, even the the smoke screen, so to speak, of uh, of sort of his his Twitter um, his Twitter on his Twitter's goings ons and how they have completely scrambled uh, sort of national national media coverage. Um, to what extent is he doing this deliberately? Uh, because it doesn't I don't have any sense of sort of Donald Trump as master manipulator with a brilliant strategy here to the extent things are being exposed. Um, I think they're being exposed and it, it just happenstance. Well, in this case, uh, um, and, and yeah, you're right, we were all speculating. But this tweet in particular, um, the sentence was close to a complete sentence. It wasn't in, <laughs> it wasn't in reaction it's Twitter. It wasn't in reaction to something. No, but we've seen him when he's like yeah, going yeah. off half cocked off Twitter and when he's pissed off and like they haven't, you know, taken his phone away from him. We've seen what that looks like. Mm -hmm. This wasn't it. This was at like six o'clock in the morning. So he's up. He's at him. He's ready to go. Um, it is apropos of absolutely nothing. So there is calculation behind this particular tweet, which is simply that, hey, look, this shit, this pop, 
populist, anti-free speech shit, pro-flag stuff is always popular. That's why Hillary Clinton and, you know, Chuck Schumer and Harry Reid have always loved this kind of crap over the years. And probably had more of a chance of passing back then when Hillary was advancing legislation as opposed to when Donald Trump says it, which again, this is the silver lining that we talked about when we take away the respectability politique. All sorts of things become disgusting and abhorrent in Donald Trump's hands. This is maybe a good thing. I don't I don't worry about uh, your RP uh, uh, obsessions. Uh, (laughs) They're not mine, let's just say. Um, But uh, uh, no, I mean, it's it's it for those who wake up in the morning in the the shivering and sweating over Donald Trump, have some faith in institutions and get to learn, learn to know them. You know, I mean, I, I've been telling my liberal friends, you are going to be happy with all of these ghastly conser- Republican appointed Supreme Court justices and the way that they have been building up a First Amendment jurisprudence over the last 25 years. You're going to get to learn to know who, what their names are and how they are right about these issues, how Scalia was right and Stevens was wrong. You better learn Rand Paul, Jeff Flake's name, Mike Lee's name, because they are your bulwark right now. So uh, have some faith in the institutions of the Constitution, of of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of the American kind of habits of free speech and then direct your fights towards where there's actual active threats. And I think, you know, look at this at a moment, laugh at it, point out the absurdity of it, and then move on to where the fight is, is my, is my recommendation uh, about this stuff. Um, I, I, gotta, I have to, to retire soon, so I want to make a, one kind of Trump comment that, uh, that is slightly off topic, but not really is that the one thing that I've found um, that's fairly interesting is that we all live, um, the three of us live in a world uh, where uh, Donald Trump, you know, the the places that we live, where our apartments are, those districts probably get about four votes for Donald Trump and about 600 for Hillary Clinton. (laughs) So it's not, it's it's, it's interesting when I talk to people about what what the sort of Trump presidency will bring, I find this, that that I get this very common response from um, uh, urban kind of upper middle class educated wealthy uh, liberals is that they're really horrified about what the rest of the world's going to think. Do you remember this, Matt? You remember this from Europe of like, oh God, you know, it's so embarrassing. This is what, you know, America's put forth this uh, reality TV show star. He's a monster. He says these terrible things and, um, and we have to, you know, live with this and answer to this abroad. So I've heard this for years. I lived in Europe uh, during the Bush presidency. I heard this quite a bit. Um, I've heard it again. And, you know, in some ways it's not wrong. But what I found in uh, the last week uh, here in Austria, and there's more to come on this on on the HBO show, uh, I believe on Friday. But uh, I've found that the the reaction to Donald Trump uh, from Austrians and a certain type of Austrian is uh, not embarrassment is not this guy's a lunatic is is, is not America should be um, sort of embarrassed by by the man you elect president to a man a very particular type of voter here says like oh yeah we kind of get what he's saying because <laughs> our party is pro-russia our far-right party is pro-russia the freedom party um, they're pro-putin they're anti-trade they don't like free trade and they think um, that the free trade agreements they're their their own version of TPP that is being um, mold over here in Austria and, and Western Europe right now, um, which I think is TIP, T-I-P-P. Um, so there's the same thing. They're uh, not uh, friendly to, to uh, Muslims, to immigrants. 
And as one political science to scientist told me the other day, he said, you know, you have a guy that's talking about building a wall. We're actually building a wall on our southern border. And um, <laughs> we uh, have been doing that for some time. And Austrians support it. And, you know, you're not going to find a lot of people here in Vienna of a big metropolitan um, city that are uh, supporters. There's one district that supports the Freedom Party here, uh, which is a working class district that used to be very social democrat, much in the way that kind of there's the kind of Sanders voters, the 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 um, kind of union people that were being told to vote for Hillary, but were kind of secretly voting for Trump. Uh, but it's also a very immigrant neighborhood, too. But everybody that I talk to that is rural that supports the Freedom Party, which will probably win the presidency on Sunday. Maybe not. We, it's a very, very close race. And they might even give us the first far-right prime minister in Europe and a guy named Heinz Christian Strache. Uh, but all of the people that vote for this party are like, no, no, we totally understand Donald Trump. It's, it makes total sense. To us. He's, he's in a way a European politician. He might be a bit vulgar, but you know he's kind of one of us and, and we were happy that he won. Yeah. And this is a lot of people that I've heard to say this. It is. It is odd. I, I find myself wondering like more and more. Um, and and this is this is rather new. This is a consequence of this election cycle, um, whether or not like any of the sort of deeply held, ostensibly deeply held beliefs about like philosophy, um, a, a commitment to free trade and limited government, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if if any of that stuff amongst sort of the general public, not the uh, intellectual uh, establishment of of, of either sort of party um, and not not to, to to claim that there aren't any independent parties. But I wonder if any of it is is, is real and, and meaningful. I wonder if anything other than sort of the the like obviously tribalist um, we are scared of those other people um, stuff is uh, is real. Uh, it's amazing to me. I talked to a social democratic politician today um, who was in a position uh, of power. He's a mayor of a town on the border and had to deal with the choke point of the refugee crisis. I talked to him today, and he um, uh, said there's, you know, we have a, it's a very social democratic town. We have a few Freedom Party people in the town council, but not many. And I, he started going on about immigration, and he started going on about, about the refugee crisis. And at the end of this, there were very, very interesting, incredibly interesting things. At the end of this, I said, I cannot believe that you're a social democrat. You don't sound like a social democrat at all. And he looked at me and he was basically started explaining to me that politics has changed. This has nothing to do with being a social Democrat anymore. He's like, yeah, I still, you know, I want a welfare state and I want, you know, taxes to pay for X, Y, and Z. But, you know, all the old political um, alignments in this country and across Europe have been upended. I mean, you have a guy in France, Francois Fillon, who won the runoff, as um, Matt, Matt knows well, who is a pro-Moscow Thatcherite who uh, hates immigration and is not a part of the National Front, not part of the traditional populist far-right party, but all the tectonic plates of, of ideology in Europe are moving. And I am trying to find one of these far-right parties um, from Donald Trump, uh, you know, Donald Trump's Republican Party to the far-right parties in Europe uh, that are not uh, pro-Kremlin. I mean, Viktor Orban in, in Hungary, right across the border from where I am now, uh, the Freedom Party here in Austria. And these are all parties that are either in power or very close to power. Uh, you know, uh, the National Front in France, Francois Fillon, the Republicans in France, the two right-wing parties, all pro-Moscow. 
it is a huge bizarro shift that does not make sense in sort of the 1992 vision of of um, ideology in the West. It's completely upended and completely bizarre. The um, the Victor Orban's party, Fidesz, uh, there. Uh, my wife wrote her college thesis on them back when they were an anti-communist party in the late 80s. Uh, they were a party whose rules were you could not be over the age of 35 to belong because you were tainted with communist uh, thinking. They were pro-environmentalists. They wanted to stop dam projects on the Danube. Uh, they were pro-capitalist. They were awesome. They were like the funnest guys in the world to hang out with in 1988, 89, 90, 91, 92. Um, then they got into power um, and uh, Victor Orban was part of the original group and they decided at a very conscious moment around 93 and 94 um, that the party needed to split and basically on a rural and urban uh, level and it turns out most of their urbanites in part of the party happen to all be Jewish, uh, self-identify more as cosmopolitans, identify with the West, and Viktor Orban and the other ones are like, hey, we're gonna we're going to play towards Hungarian nationalism and the feeling that uh, the world is making decisions outside of our borders in capitals like Bratislava and New York and Tel Aviv, and this is the language that they would use. Um, and they came to, and I watched that split happen in real time. It became the, a, a group called the Free Democrats, who eventually uh, dissipated, who were the cosmopolitans that were expelled. But these guys went from being really interesting early post-communist uh, party thinkers uh, to choosing the populist angle, the nationalist angle, and since then uh, have uh, uh, have really, uh, especially over the last five to ten years, have really turned Hungary from being uh, one of the leading post-communist countries, uh, if not the leading one, uh, to backsliding uh, into a place that even Hungarians who famously do not want to leave their country unless something cataclysmic happens like happened in 1956, Hungarians are starting to leave because of uh, the, the, the proto-Trumpian policies that they uh, have adopted uh, there. And, and it saddens me to no end as someone who lived there for three years. Well, well I'll just say this and my, yeah. my last comment on this and then I'm going to disappear and you guys can uh, – Get to somebody at wrote list, and I hope, uh, 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 Camille, you will uh, go over some of the things that I sent you today. I think, or this week, that were uh, race related that um, I thought you'd enjoy. So there's some of that stuff that you should get to <laughs> when I am tucked into my bed. But the one thing I was saying finally is is that you know we talked about this as far right, far left, um, et cetera, in the, in the kind of continuum of European politics. Uh, you know, the far right are all welfare state parties. Um, they are all. You know, let's have um, transfer payments, but just make sure they're for people that were born here and look like me and are Christian and not Muslim. Um, but I think the era of politics now is the, the, the era of nationalism and not necessarily populism. And we see this in a country like the country that I uh, lived in for many years, Sweden, where the libertarians are split in a really uh, interesting way over immigration. And there's a kind of utopianism of certain libertarians who say there shall be no borders and we should not constrain the movement of free people, et cetera. And there are a number of libertarians who are kind of economically libertarian, Friedmanites, and who remember Milton Friedman's uh, admonition that you can uh, have free movement provided you don't have a big welfare state on the other side uh, of the border. And there's a big fight about that here. And what is undergirding all of this is uh, nationalism. And of people really coming back to the idea 
after so many years of the European project of the nation state and and you know these the Schengen agreement and all this kind of open borders. I mean, I went into Hungary today and just drove across and drove back without a passport. And there are people that on the other side and the Austrian side don't want that to happen anymore. Um, and they are talking about themselves and the language of the politics and the, especially the language of the slogans of the, of the parties. Uh, like here in Austria, they use the word Heimat, which is a, a very loaded word about homeland. Um, and people are really coming back to this idea of um, what the nation is in Sweden, in Western Europe. And you see this in, in, in American politics, too. And you actually see it in a stupid, idiotic, nonsensical, you know, almost tyrannical uh, tweet about flag burning and throwing and taking people's passports away. Um, but that is the era that we live in, unfortunately, now. I think it's unfortunate is, is one not of populism as such, but but more of nationalism. But there, but there may be something to be said for the fact that people are actually outraged by the the tweet about flag burning that someone is sure. is shouting Absolutely. about it. Whereas before, yeah. again, this is a position that the other candidate held as well, at least at some yes. point in recent memory. So I don't know. Um, Maybe was... a reason for optimism. But uh, but Moynihan, I'll, I'll let you go to bed uh, unless you've decided not to wuss out and you'll just stay no, and talk no, to us no, for a while. No, no, no. I'm gonna take a I'm gonna take a Xanax right now. And uh, watch Cuban state television. So wish me luck. All mm-hmm. right. Go, sweet, <laughs> sweet dreams, uh, sweet prince. Sicko. All right. All right. I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Well, there is something. Um, we, we've we actually had several people um, send us this uh, New York Times piece by Amanda Taub, um, how, how stable are democracies, warning signs are, are flashing red. Uh, warning signs are flashing red is in quotes. Um, and it is about uh, these uh, two academics – uh, who have a study that will be uh, in the Journal of Democracy uh, in January. So I haven't seen it yet, uh, but she does talk about some of their conclusions. And the fact of the matter is that there's a, a theory sort of amongst some political scientists called democratic consolidation, this notion that like a, a, a liberal democracy will be relatively stable um, over time, that you, you achieve a certain level of, uh, of wealth and prosperity. And, you know, this, this thing sort of reinforces itself and protects itself. It is the sort of theory, I think, that is born out of a limited data set. Um, so we can say, hey, this is just the way it is. This is the science of humanity. Um, but uh, these two academics take issue with that. Um, and uh, the evidence that is cited in the article, um, amongst various other things, um, and we'll, again, have to wait for the paper to come out, is uh, like the Freedom House Index, which since 2005 um, has showed sort of declining global freedom each year, um, even in some democracies, countries like Venezuela, a democracy uh, has declining freedom. And I, one thing that sort of stood out to me as I read this article, and, and I suspect that you, you will have some, some thoughts on this, but we've, this has been a theme that's come up a few times um, over the course of the last couple of weeks, um, is that this, this confusion of sort of democracy with freedom, um, as though the two things are synonymous. Um, and what's obvious to me is that, you know, democracy narrowly is about the majority choosing to do something and everyone having to go along with it. Um, and that that in and of itself is not the same thing as freedom. Um, it's certainly not the same thing as like a constitutional republic. Um, it certainly doesn't suggest that you get all of these institutional checks and balances. Um, and the the intellectual sloppiness, um, or at least the consequence of a general sloppiness amongst journalists, amongst the citizenry, in not understanding 
the thing that actually makes you free um, and thinking that it is, say, democracy when in fact it is something else uh, is incredibly dangerous and I suspect does in fact lead to a, a fair amount of instability potentially, um, which will almost certainly be heightened when there's sort of a moment of economic uh, insecurity or uncertainty or perhaps fear and panic associated with terrorism or something like that. My English but, teacher in high school, one of the only bits of uh, K through 12 learning that was worth a shit in my, uh, in my childhood, um, warned me about one thing that I remembered, which is uh, whenever you, words get overused, they lose their value and it's just bad writing. So a word like get, mm. you know, uh, we just use the word get. I'm getting tired. Uh, he's getting off this, and he's you know get. It was just it's 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 a it's a lazy word. So look for a more specific word, as uh, George Orwell and my English teacher uh, pointed out. I think that the way that most people use democracy, it they're not thinking about it like Camille Foster is thinking about it. They're using it as what is our one stand uh, stand in word for more or less you are capitalistic, you know, with caveats. More or less you have elections and you have freedom and you don't have a dictator and a monarchy. We call this kind of a liberal democracy. We don't really think about democracy means that a, a bare majority of people can boss the other people around. We don't think – I mean the, you're, you're absolutely right. There is a difference between a republic and a democracy. And at the same time, you're wrong to think if – in case you do, uh, and I don't think that you do, uh, that uh, – 90% of people give a shit about that distinction uh, just because they're not using the words in those senses. Uh, I think that the the rot at the heart of things isn't the failure to understand that distinction. And that would not the rot, but the the sort of instability that we're seeing right now. I'm reminded more of an incredible lecture that I saw uh, from the great uh, Hungarian-born historian Istvan Ratz. Uh, and I'm messing up his last name because that was the name of a central banker at Credit Suisse for Boston. That's, That's okay. not it's important not, right now. Yeah, it's not an easy name, so it's okay. Istvan, uh, maybe it was Tot, whatever. It's a common Hungarian name. It was at Columbia University around 1993, and he started this spellbinding lecture talking about imagine a time when people could travel through Europe uh, from the Adriatic Sea to the Baltic Sea without a passport, when there was a, 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 a peace had broken out everywhere after a war had torn through things for centuries, uh, when people were living uh, cheek by jowl uh, together, uh, there was new innovations and technological marvels, uh, all these kinds of things happening. And everybody in the room, me included, thought he was talking about 1993 because that was the world that we were getting to. We, uh, Moynihan was talking about Schengen, the uh, the agreement that allowed you know Polish plumbers to move to England and, and work as Polish plumbers. Um, all these wonders happened in the 1990s, and it was a really great time to be alive, be in Europe, uh, and watch this kind of stuff happen, but he wasn't talking about that. He was talking about Europe in 1905 and in 1907 and in 1910 and in the 1890s, where all this great industrial, the fruits of the Industrial Revolution were happening. People were freer than they'd ever been. And people were talking about, hey, look, the normal rules no longer apply. We've come to some new grace period of prosperity and exchange and understanding. Uh, and it's going to be great from here on out. And of course, it collapsed in incredible uh, sectarian cataclysm and cataclysm and war and empires dissolving and new ideologies that are murderous coming up around them. Uh, his point being, look, this stuff just doesn't last. There is nothing that's stable. One of the reasons why it's not stable, um, that's a challenge to those of us um, 
and that would include me and Moynihan pretty central among uh, people who think like this, those of us who celebrate the modern day version of all this kind of stuff, who talk about the process, the talk about the fact that we've seen a greater um, eradication of poverty in this world over the last 25 years and of war since the end of the Cold War over the last 25 years. All these wonderful things, the liberal order of the world, liberal democracies, God damn it, Camille Foster. <laughs> um, this has been a marvelous thing, but what this also produced is a managerial class of assholes like me, or even worse than me, um, who get fat and happy telling everybody about how great it is, and meanwhile it loses democratic legitimacy. And so I think a lot of the, um, the a lot of the things that people like me are reacting negatively to is that the people who do have a vote in democratic institutions and in democratic countries say, hey, look, uh, we're tired of you lot profiting off this in a way that it doesn't seem immediately obvious to us. And so the challenge from people like me um, is to say, is to explain um, is to acknowledge the own faults, not only in the way that we think, but in the institutions that we more or less support um, and uh, and address them and make them better and also make them translatable uh, to people who have a vote and can change their minds about stuff and to realize that it's not inevitable. It is when you backtrack into nationalism, which we're doing and you backtrack into trade wars, which we might do. Any number of, of bad things are possible. So don't get uh, – don't rest on your laurels. Get out there and argue for the shit. Well, I, I think the, the issue though, Matt, is I, I'm not – I am not concerned with sort of the, the convention, right? It's not merely that people use democracy in place of sort of a, a, a more explicit endorsement of like the idea of a, of a constitutional republic with checks and balances, et cetera, et cetera. It's that – I am suggesting that people actually value democracy as literally understood. And, and sure, there is often some other stuff that's added in there. But when they're outraged about the Electoral College, it's because it's insufficiently democratic. Um, it's because they lost. But it's, but it's also because they're insufficiently democratic. Like that is a part of it, that there is a tendency to try to make things a lot more democratic. That that, yeah. is, that, that, is, a, that, that is the principal that's not, virtue and that's value not, in, some, in some respect. And but even that's a, not consistent, Kambil. I mean – What's not consistent? That view from those people is not consistent because they weren't saying, singing that tune in November and December of 2004 when George W. Bush just won re-election in part because Karl Rove thought it would be a great idea to submit a bunch of anti-gay marriage ballot proposals all over the country. Mm -hmm. And they're like – you shouldn't submit this to a vote yet. We're not ready to submit this to a vote when the when the will of the majority can can tell a minority what it can't do. That's tyranny. People will remember their Republican values in moments when they lose. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm saying it's I think it's a lot more. Um, it's a lot more situational in the way, the same way that everybody, sure. including libertarians, are situational about their federalism, about their sense that localism and states' rights and that kind of stuff and experimentation is important. Well, they they learn that as liberals are doing right now in America, and when talking about secession in California and this kind of stuff, they learn that when they lose, well, right? So sure. the, those those values, I I don't think that democracy for democracy's sake um, uh, is is as strong as you suspect, uh, in part because some of those same people will say, you know, direct democracy in California is a nightmare, for example. Or, you know, that's why we don't have direct democracy and ballot initiatives. Well, in whether whether or not the they country. whether or not they recognize um, that direct democracy is the problem and not, say, special interests who are ruining their politics um, is a is another matter entirely. And I would submit to you that 
people in California who enjoy d- direct democracy. And there's a little sarcasm there. Um, that most of them wouldn't complain. Well, we don't. We don't want this. We don't want this because we understand that it's causing problems. They don't. I don't think they understand. They don't get it. And and my my issue is, and perhaps it's more fundamental. And it's not so much just the democracy thing. It's that there doesn't really seem to be a fundamental appreciation um, until again someone who is boorish comes along and starts saying gross things that make it very plain what we mean uh, when we say certain things. Um, there doesn't seem to be a real appreciation for those sort of fundamental. Um, Western values uh, that are supposed to be so sacred here, um, freedom of speech and, and, and the right to live your life as you so choose, um, and, the, and the intellectual um, inconsistency uh, that, that exists in between people's uh, sort of philosophical perspectives on any number of issues, just for whatever reason, don't really seem to, they don't seem to make themselves manifest in, in a lot of circumstances. Well, but let, I don't, don't want to... Let's, let's put one bow on this we'll and tie up, uh, tie up two conversations that we've had basically in this podcast, which is that some of the same people who worried about the incipient fascism of the Donald Trump administration then talked about how great it is that Cuba has 99% literacy rates and, and uh-huh. back off on Fidel Castro. Yeah. It's like, dude, y- you don't understand. Not only are you wrong... But you're making it harder for me yeah. to resist the bad parts about Donald Trump. Yeah. If we got to play defense here, that means we have to be uh, very careful and correct as much as we can about where the real threats are, as opposed to the tweeted threats. Yeah. Um, and also to have to have the moral judgment to separate out. This is a, an outrage against. Uh, our kind of Republican American constitutional values as opposed to, ca- you know, category X, which is just, yeah, conservatives want to do their conservative thing. You've got to be able to sort that out and yeah. ha- and lacking that moral judgment in the same week having to do with two separate people. If you can't see that Fidel Castro is worse than Donald Trump, <laughs> you need to step away from the fucking keyboard. Yeah. Yeah. One of one of the uh, the absolute stupidest things um, that I that I saw in response to to um the 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 um the Castro Castro's passing was from a uh, Tariq Nasheed um who is Why some, be so racist some sort time. of circus clown um on Twitter uh who who has an ungodly number of followers and and he asked uh, can anyone tell me what Fidel Castro did to people in Cuba that is not being done to black people in America right now um and uh yeah. You know, the the prominence uh, and frequency of nonsense like that uh, on the on the interwebs over the course of the last couple of days, um, over the course of the last week, with great frequency all the time um, is astonishing to me. Um, Matt, we, we've been going a little while, but you uh, mentioned a a piece, was it in Wired? um, I think over, over, over text. Earlier, I mentioned, mentioned the piece. Did I really? I thought you did. Yeah, I don't think so. Maybe, maybe you didn't. No, I do want to shout out. But there was there was something about names being floated, uh, like Massey and, and some other folks. Oh uh, yeah, a, a well, fraudulent that, no, actually, story that happened uh, in Reason. Uh, we'll 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 talk about it another time. Okay. I, I think as uh, we're running up against it, and I and I wanted to point out uh, because right now Reason, my primary employer, is having our uh, annual webathon. Oh, that's nice. And I'm not. Which we're a nonprofit, published by nonprofit, so we uh, we rattle the, the the tin cup, and we're trying to raise a quarter million dollars mm. out there. So um, well, you need to you need to get in touch with Jill Stein. Uh, no Obviously. Well, we're going to fund Gary Johnson's recount once and for all. Uh, uh, no, I bring this up for a couple of reasons, not just to advertise it and go to Reason.com and check it out, but because people, when they're giving, they, there's a little space in the box saying, you know, add a special request.
request or a or just you know feedback or something, and I go through the uh, the database of these things and look through them. And uh, one of the first ones was. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Camille for president, twenty twenty. Mm. Um, so uh, people out there um, are hearing the uh, the the hashtag twenty twenty, and hopefully we're going to have uh, someone on the show next week. I'm not going to spoil it, but uh, we might talk a little bit about that, uh, whether you want <laughs> her to or not. Um, but uh, but uh, uh, so yeah, some of the people are giving direct uh, feedback about uh, this podcast, which well, is, is uh, which uh, is nice to hear. That is very nice, and it and it feels nice. And uh, shouts out to Drew White, um, who is a, a, a listener to the uh, podcast and uh, has uh, messaged me on Twitter a few times. I, I do. I, I get the DMS. If you, uh, if you shoot me a DM, um, just don't send me any lewd pictures. I don't need any more of those. Yeah. I'm fine on that. Uh, but Drew didn't send me lewd pictures. He actually sent, uh, sent me a hoodie, a hoodie um, that has uh, a, a quotation from the, uh, the, the chairman of the, the libertarian party uh, about uh, parties dying on the front. And uh, on the back, it, it actually says uh, Camille, uh, Camille Foster 2020. Wow. Which, again, I've not formally declared no. my intention to run for anything. Certainly not. Uh, I appreciate the enthusiasm. It is very nice, very kind. Um, but, uh, yeah, whatever. Um, well, I think, uh, I think we've done a lot of good work here tonight and I, I feel, I feel inspired and fired up. Um, I wonder if you, uh, encountered an idiot writing anything, Matt. That, that was kind of the first half of the show. It's, uh, there was a lot of idiots <laughs> writing things there. Uh, uh, yeah. It, yeah maybe, maybe we shouldn't highlight any more idiots writing no, things today. Yeah. I, I, I think we've had a, I, I will add one thing. Here's, here's your idiot. And this uh, changes the subject a little bit. Dan Shaughnessy, otherwise noted, I think CHB, uh, was a Kurt Schilling's nickname for him, which is either curly headed baby or curly headed bitch. I forget, but he's the awful, uh, Boston, uh, globe, I believe a sports writer who you can occasionally see on TV. Terrible, terrible, terrible. He wrote a column today talking about the baseball hall of fame. He has a vote uh, as a member of the baseball writers of association and, uh, of America. And, uh, unlike the previous two years, this year he's not going to vote for Kurt Schilling. Now you might ask, why should anyone care if they don't care about baseball? Here's why: um, Kurt Schilling, who's borderline, I think he belongs uh, in uh, a great pitcher. Um, he says he's not going to vote for Kurt Schilling this year, unlike the previous ter- two years, because of what Kurt Schilling has said about journalists on Twitter this year. Um, made some uh, reference to an intemperate joke about how journalists should be hanged. But it's basically because Kurt Schilling is a knuckle-dragging right-wing troglodyte, which he totally is, in addition <laughs> to being a welfare queen who like misspent $50 million or something of Rhode Island public money on a gaming company that flamed out. All of which is true. But my God, can we not politicize absolutely everything in this world of ours, including a Hall of Fame freaking vote based on someone's intemperate post-career Politically based tweet for crying out loud. Well, the answer Shaughnessy, to that question is, idiot. is obvious. Of course, we can't. We have to politicize everything because we live the, in a uh, democracy. It's the American way. Um, yeah. Well, I, I'm 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 sorry. I'm sorry for that. I know how important baseball is to you, um, even though it bores me to tears um, as a as a sport. Um, late breaking uh, information: Kanye West is apparently out of the hospital. Oh, good. Um, which is which is good. There's been some uh, vicious rumors out there that he is faking. Uh, I don't believe that. I wish it were true because that would mean I would definitely get uh, more amazing music from Kanye, and I'm not not so sure uh, right now. Apparently, he was trying to record music from the hospital despite his wife uh, begging him to stop it. 
Uh, um, and then has Chad come out of the hospital yet, or is he still like wandering, muttering around in his bathroom? Do we're, we know? Are we talking about Chad, our, our sound engineer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah no, no, I mean, he's, he's obviously he's, not here today, he's, so he's we can talk here. about him. He's still here. Okay. Um, and uh, I've got a prediction, Matt, and I Uh-oh. suspect you may you may actually back this. I don't really do this sort of thing when it comes to sort of uh, politics and, and things that are likely to happen, but I am almost 100% sure that Donald Trump and this whole uh, Mitt Romney for Secretary of State thing, Mm. that he is totally screwing with him. And I cannot understand why Mitt Romney is going along with this at all. He is stringing him along. He is almost always, he is almost certainly said to him, hey, you know, Mitt, we're going to, we're going to wait until the last minute. You're going to be the last person that we appoint because, dude, we just want to build up to it because this is really great. And, or he's telling him, you know, this is hard for me because there are a lot of my supporters aren't fans of you, but I know how great you are just so he can, twist the knife it's gonna humiliate he him loves the procession of uh, of assholes showing up at trump tower to uh, to kiss the ring including uh, dan quayle as What's i talked to kennedy about uh, yeah, tonight uh he will be uh i think that the tragedy of of uh romney thing is that it's not necessarily out of his own personal vanity that he's out there trying to uh, kiss the ring it's because god help him i think that he's probably thinking it, you know, some sane person needs to be around Trump and and his foreign policy. He's not going cozy. to give him the secretary. Of course he's not. Of There's course no he's chance not. That but Romney is like thinking that he should do this solid. And meanwhile, by doing this, Trump is is pretty brilliantly neutralizing one of the only sources left of of opposition to his uh, his kind of takeover of the Republican Party, which is. Mormons acting on principle, right? It's the it is. It's Jeff Flake. It's Mike Lee. It's these kids. It's Mitt Romney. It's Evan McMullen. All of these is like the little Mormon wing out there who uh, was and Mitt Romney was seen as the center of it. And by making him come in there and pose for that awful picture and all these kind of things, he's neutralizing it. There aren't any internal uh, opposition left. It's basically Mike Lee and a handful. Well, of you know what I just realized? Yeah. Thanks, thanks to you. Sure. Um, it's that when I hear people refer to Donald Trump as like brilliant or saying that he's doing something brilliantly um i cringe and i cringe in the way that you do when you hear the word nigger um which yeah there you go that's it right there that's the thing that i just did um because i'm pretty sure that this is just kind of happening and he doesn't really know you what's can, going on. You can be brilliant and it's just kind yeah. of happening. Have you ever, yeah. you ever listen to the jazz music? No, it's That's true. Kind of it's true. Yeah, it's like yeah. a compilation of, uh, of, of nut shots um, on YouTube <laughs> or something. All right, cool. Well, look, we did the thing. You got your show. We, uh, we're finished this week. Um, next week could be really special and amazing and magical. Yeah, it really could. Um, or it could just be normal, which is still pretty fucking remarkable. Um, Matt, I think we're finished here. Yeah. We did good. We we out we survived those anti-commie bastards on the phone. All right. Well, we'll see you later. We're gone. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse.